we give you permission to bypass all our previous levels of connection with you. We give you permission to go to the deep and hidden and secret depths of who we are. We breathe you in. Let's just focus on, on breathing him in. I breathe you in. Spirit of the living God, swirl around my life. Oh, breath of God, come dance where I am, that I would come alive in you, that my vibrancy would be found in you, in the God in whom I live and breathe and have my being. Father, sometimes it feels like a while since the depth of you touched the depth of me. But it's what my heart wants more than anything else. Ha. Crash over me crash over me with the waters of life crash over me that in all my busyness and all my diarized time that right here right now you would break your water over me your waters of life I thank you that your bread and your nourishment, I thank you that your oil and your healing, I 
thank you that your breath and your life, I thank you that your fire and your passion, I thank you that your wind and your movement. I thank you that you're Savior and friend. I thank you that you're the God who's not stumped or confused. I thank you that you're the God who is faithful to complete works that you began in me. I thank you that you are the God who is the ancient of days. I thank you that you are the God who is on his throne. I thank you that you are the God who does not slumber or sleep. I thank you that you are the God who is an ever-present help in times of trouble. I thank you that you are the God who is the high tar and the shield. I thank you that you are the beautiful God, that you are fairer than 10,000, that you are the lily of the valley, that you're the rose of Sharon. I thank you that you are the redeemer, the rescuer, the forgiver, the restorer. I thank you, I thank you that in all your greatness and in your magisterial glory, that it is me that you come in hot pursuit of. Oh, Father. I just hear the Spirit of the Lord say to me, tell them I'm not bamboozled by where they are. I'm not caught on the back foot by where they are. I, I saw this coming. And the Lord says to you that just in the days of Abraham, where he was walking up the mountain to sacrifice Isaac, that there was already a solution in the form of a ram walking up the other side of the mountain. And the Spirit of the Lord says, I have already loosed all that you need that you have not yet seen, but it is making its way up the backside of the mountain. And the Spirit of the Lord says, do not think that I do not know what to do for you where you are. Amen. Whoa. Sam is a lovely young man. I know, I've had a hug. Come on up, Sam. <laughs> this is Sam. <laughs> Father, I ask you to unleash yourself to us through our brother Sam. that he might be all that you've trained him up to be in you. And you might be all he's been released to let loose of you in him that we all get built up in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow. Megan's bucket is open. <laughs> Shall we pass that around? We'll do it. Just on. Hello, well, it's so good to be with you this afternoon. Uh, as was said, my name is Sam. I clearly have the best job in the world, getting to work and follow Emma and David um, and getting to work with Sarah Jane. 
Uh, so much fun getting to prophesying, to teach, uh, and to lead um, within our framework in Glasgow, but to get to travel and to teach you guys and share with what I believe God is saying to the church right now and what we need to work with uh, and outwork, uh, particularly in this season of time. I just have a couple of words of knowledge for healings uh, that I'm just going to call out, and if they apply to you, I want you to just stand straight up, and as you stand, God is healing you right on the spot. He's healing you as the word is spoken. Some of you will be healed before you before you even get to your feet. And, and so there is insomnia and extreme exhaustion, particularly uh, adrenal fatigue as well on the back of that. There is extreme pain in someone's left ankle and the sole of their feet when they walk on it. Um, there is discomfort with someone in the lower right-hand part of your back when you lie down in particular, but it's the right-hand side lower that I can feel right now. Tension headaches that you feel particularly strong when you bend down to tie your shoelaces. <laughs> that gets you quite dizzy. If you get really dizzy when you're bending down to tie your shoelaces. Yeah, do you want to just get around them right now? And we're just going to release healing. And as you feel 50% healed, if you feel 50%, I want you to put one hand in the air. And if you feel 100% healed or 80% healed, both hands in the air. So we just loose healing in the name of Jesus right now. We loose healing right now in the name of Jesus. Be healed in Jesus' name. Yeah, that spirit of infirmity flees your body right now in the name of Jesus. Yeah, both hands in the air. Make sure you're testing it. One hand if it's 50%, both hands if it's more. Thank you, Jesus. Be healed in the name of Jesus. I just speak to those tension headaches, and they get off your life right now in the name of Jesus. Remember, hands in the air as we're testing them. We want to see you all healed right now. Be healed in the name of Jesus. Right now in Jesus' name. So Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. If you have had a 80% or 100% healing, keep it both hands in the air. Do you want to just share really quickly, just while other people are being prayed for so that you can release faith, just what you had and now that you don't have it, how you can tell? I had severe heel pain. It's called the plantar fasciitis, and it's excruciating. And I can put my heel down without any pain. Amazing. Amazing. Who else has complete healing? Just a couple of testimonies. Testimonies prophesy that Jesus can do it again. Labyrinthitis. 
It's gone. Yeah. Completely gone. It's completely gone in man. Yourself. I had a really bad migraine over lunchtime. My friend prayed for the front of my head and that went. And then uh, the back of my neck was really painful and uh, that's gone, so that's really good. Is there anyone else that still has pain that is standing up? that isn't healed. Do you want to just put your hands in the air? There's healing anointing in the room. So I want you to just grab a hold of that. Close your eyes. But I want you to just grab a hold of what is in the atmosphere around about you right now. That healing oil. I want you to grab a hold of it. And I want you to begin to just lay hands on the part of your body that's sore. Yeah. Okay. And so for you, just on this side of the room with your hand up in the gray cardigan, we just break that Freemasonry generational curse off you and off your family line and where it's had uh, a deterioration effect on your physical body and even on your muscles and your joints. We break it in the name of Jesus and we lose full health to you right now in Jesus' name. That Freemasonry curse is gone and off your back in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. It's good. Don't you love seeing people healed? Yes. I'm glad four of you do. So really, I want to share with you kind of prophetically what I believe God is saying to his church and his people right now and two particular areas that we need to deal with so that we can be the best representations of Jesus on the earth in this season. Uh, and I believe that we really have come to a tipping point in the church. And I believe that there are two ways that we can tip. We can be those who tip backwards and dilute our message and dilute our truth so that we become palatable to the world. Or we can be those who tip forward and who stand for truth and who begin to provoke and who begin to declare truth in every possible way. And I don't know about you, but I want to tip forward into truth. I don't want to dilute the word of God, dilute who Jesus is, just so I'm accepted. And I believe that Jesus is interceding for his church to rise again in the earth as a people who are uncompromised in their demonstration of who he is and undiluted in their communication of his ways. And Jesus right now is praying for you to be countercultural in every possible way. He is praying for you to have a life that reveals well who he is to everyone around you. And more than ever before, men and women filled with solution, filled with a different way of doing things, filled with a different way of building up their day are required to rise from their hiddenness and rise in the earth. And I want to say this to you. I believe that the world is waiting to make a withdrawal from you. You're excited. I believe that the world is waiting to make a withdrawal from you. You carry something that the world requires. And so I heard the Lord say uh, about a month ago, 
over and over and over again. I am setting apart the set apart. I am setting apart the set apart. I am setting apart the set apart. And the Lord says that there has been a cultural storm, and there is a cultural storm that is trying to dilute truth, yet you are to be a new kind of resilient and determined people. And now God says that he is sending a new level of fire to consecrate you and to set you apart so that a new move movement might come into the earth. And the Lord says, church, now I am calling you higher. Now I am calling you higher. There's another standard that we now must live up to. And so as I was praying about this, the Lord pulled me into an encounter out of Isaiah 6. And I was praying at the end of that passage, you'll know it well, here I am, God send me. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's prayed that prayer before. And we see that that's a defining moment in Isaiah's ministry where God sets him up to be a spokesperson for him on the earth. And as I was praying, God lifted me up and I won't go into details, but he showed me all these layers of my life that fire was yet to come to. And the Lord said that just as Isaiah had to engage with my burning, with my fire, just as a death had to come before sending, so I am asking you, Sam, and my people to engage with awe, to engage with wonder, to engage with majesty, and to engage with fire. And the Lord says, as you do so, I will do the rest for you. As you intentionally engage with the set-apart lifestyle, I will set you up to be one who architects hope in nations and cities. There is a new level of fire that is coming to you. You see, I was too busy focusing on the words that were to come out of my mouth that I forgot to engage with God who was going to be the one who put them there. And I knew that if I wanted to share the kind of words, not for my own self, but words that brought real change, words that brought a tangible transformation as I prophesied, as I read in Scripture, I knew that if I wanted that to come from my life, I needed to engage with fire. And so there is a new consecration coming to you. And there is an encounter available to you like Isaiah had with God. And your lips are going to be burnt with coal so that you can architect hope in people, cities, and nations. And really we see with that, kind of going off script a little bit, with Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And we see Uzziah, not Isaiah, Uzziah, a king, a very godly king, a very godly man, actually, who unfortunately came to a place where he took his eyes off his God and put it on himself. He became consumed by who he was. He became consumed by pride. And the Lord had to kill that. The Lord had to bring that to an end, a self-focusedness so that he could send Isaiah. And I think when I read that scripture in particular, when I read of Uzziah, Uzziah to me represents an inability to long-term sustain a move of God. And the Lord had to bring that to its end 
so that he could send Isaiah, a man who would be known for, his, for God's glory and who would be consumed by glory, but then prophesy of glory. And so, if I could give you a verse that would illustrate where I believe we are in the earth again, I think Joshua 3.5 would be quite accurate. Consecrate yourself, set yourself apart, sanctify yourself. One says, make yourself holy, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And as we intentionally engage with a new kind of lifestyle, God will initiate transformation in nations through us. But we first, must we first must engage in a new kind of lifestyle for that to happen. And so, in a recent article in Christianity Today, which is one of the Christian magazines, uh, there's an article about what one man sees as the solution uh, or, or the, 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 what we need to do as the Western church to survive right now. Now, I would disagree with his idea that we have to completely separate ourselves from the world because we are meant to be in the world, not of it. But he says this amazing uh, quote that I think sums up where we are right now. And I don't really realize, I don't think he realized just how prophetic he was being. And he says this to, to survive in the West. We are going to have to learn habits of the heart forgotten. We are going to have to change our lives and our approach to life in radical ways. We are going to have to learn habits of the heart forgotten. And I think I would add on to that. We're going to have to forget some habits of the heart that we formed. We are going to have to change our lives and our approach to life in radical ways. And we are going to have, as this is what I'm adding, to rediscover what it means to be completely and fully owned by God. To be possessed by his values. To have another kingdom's ways superimposed on our lives. And God, I think, is being gracious to us. And he is saying, People, I'm giving you a time of new beginnings where you, I am allowing you to begin to disentangle yourselves from the ways of this hour that you have unfortunately conformed to. And the Lord has given you this moment of grace to say, actually, I think I've been a little bit more like the world than I've been like your world, God. But would you unravel that and disentangle that from me and show me how I'm meant to live? And so we see throughout Scripture, God always setting a person apart so that they might steward something quite extraordinary in the earth. And so we see, for instance, Genesis 13, God calling Abraham to depart from what is familiar, to be separated unto God so that a new nation might be made out of him. Samuel set apart from birth to shift a people who do not know what God's voice sound like to being a people who are surrounded by the voice of God all of the time. Joseph was required to be separated from his environment so that he could be one that God would trust with rulership in the nation, but also be one that God would trust with the ear of Pharaoh. And we have the 12 called to forgo their lifestyle, discard what they once had known. And they were so marked by another kingdom they were so marked by another way that even the Sanhedrin took note that these men had been with Jesus. 
God always sets apart those who he will use to usher something extraordinary into the earth. And this hour is no different. But I don't believe that God is forcing this on you. I don't believe that God is forcing his fire on you. I don't believe he is forcing you to be set apart. I do believe you have to opt into this and he needs your yes. But I think if I was to really communicate what I feel like being set apart is and the lifestyle and what it means to go through that process, I would use this sentence that has been going around my head for, for months. That to be set apart is not to strive to be someone that you are not. But it is to rediscover who you truly are. And the Lord is saying, church, people, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. And so we see that with Jeremiah 1.5. God speaks to an insecure does that feel like anyone self-criticizing? Does that feel like anyone self-doubting? Jeremiah, who was completely more aware of his flaws than he was of God. Feel like anyone? And he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to nations. I think that's incredible. Before I formed you, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. And not all of you are called as a prophet to nations, but all of you are called to bring something extraordinary into the earth, yes? And before you were born, God imagined you. He dreamt about you, and he dreamt about what you would achieve. He thought you up, and when he thought about you, he felt good things about you. And while you were in your mother's womb, God began to stir. And he began to stir, and he began to stir and knit together in you a call and a purpose and a mandate that only you could fulfill on the earth. And at that point, he put in you all the resources, all the abilities that you needed to fulfill it. He marked you for a particular task, and he consecrated you to fulfill that task. But I think that somehow, through mistakes and sinful moments, many of us have come to the conclusion that God made us flawed. And while we might not have said that out of our mouths, when we go, well, I'm never really going to be able to change that habit, am I? Or, I guess I'm always going to be a little bit like that. Or, when you do something wrong, well, that's just me. Inadvertently, you're saying God made you flawed. You are not a flawed design. He did not make you flawed. And to live in sin is to live in forgetfulness. It is essentially to forget who God made you to be. When you misrepresent God, when you swear, <laughs> when you have an angry moment in a place of frustration, when you have an argument where you are arguing a point that you knew in the moment that you were wrong about, but you're arguing just because you had to be in your bonnet. You just forgot who you are. 
And so, as I said again, and as Rod Dreher says, we are going to have to learn and remember habits of the heart forgotten. We are going to have to rediscover what it means to be God's own possession. And so I want to talk maybe for about another five minutes just about some truths that I think we need to keep our eyes fixed on if we want to live this effectively before we deal with some things that I think stop us doing it effectively. I don't know about you, but whenever in the past I heard the word set apart, I think I probably, and part of that is because I've journeyed a prophetic lifestyle, and you hear set apart around that a lot. But I think we probably have this idea that to be set apart is really isolated and lonely. And that the idea of being set apart is that God separates you from everything. But actually, Scripture tells us that the purpose of set apart is not to set you out of something, but it's to set you into something. It's to take you out of one kingdom, out of one way of doing things, and put you right in the middle of another kingdom and another way of doing things. And so there is another standard that I live to. And yes, I am holy in part because I resist things of the world. But I am also holy because I live to the standard of another kingdom. More so holy because I live to the standard of another kingdom. And so I don't believe that being set apart is just surrender. I think that's a weak definition or idea of it. But setting yourself apart is a call to align your life with a higher way of living and a higher call. God has called you to give up one set of values, but he's also called you to ad adopt another set of values. He has stripped you of one identity, yes, but he has also clothed you in another identity. And so we see in 1 Peter 2.9, this verse that you need to grab a hold of again, and that you need to begin to wash over yourself and pray and pray and pray and pray. This is what you need to, the standard really, that you want your life to live up to. And you should know it well. We hear it all the time. But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you, had rece now you have received mercy. You want to close your eyes for a second, in fact. I want you to think or ask God to show you one area in your life that you're battling something against. Or one area where you're struggling or can't move forward. Open your eyes. I'm not going to ask you to shade it. So as I go through this, I'm going to ask you each time, now that I know that this is a truth, how am I going to approach that situation differently? So that first initial statement, you are chosen God has marked you. He saw you and he wanted you. You see, you're required 
for God's plan on the earth. Do you know that? You're not optional. You're required for his plan on the earth. What you have is required. He chose you and you are necessary for everything that he wants to do in and through and in Newcastle and the surrounding areas. And to think that God doesn't have something unique up his sleeve for you to do is to argue with truth. I'd really want to do that. <laughs> truth always wins. You are handpicked. And this word for chosen means elect. It means favorite. You are God's favorite. He elected you. He chose you not because of your race or because of any other qualifications. He chose you because he chose you because he chose you because he chose you. And you are, at the very core of who you are, chosen. So close your eyes. How does a chosen person approach that situation that I just had in my head? Someone who's required. open your eyes you might not all have something but you'll all get something from at least one of these points but as well you are a minister with royal authority you are royal you are kingly you are called to rule and to reign to build and to steward to bless the people who are around you to bring change into your environment and you see the king was special in Israel because he was anointed with oil by the priest and this means that he was equipped and empowered by God to do the task of ruling and reign, of ruling Israel and fighting the battles of God. And often you'll see in the, the word of God, uh, the Holy Spirit coming upon kings to fight battles. But this is what I want to say. Kings do not just sit on their throne in inactivity and make decrees and decisions. But they roll up their sleeves, they fight and they win. You are made to fight and to win. You are made to fight and to win. You are an active, required ruler within the kingdom of God. And you are meant to be one who decrees some things and actually sees them established. Actually sees them established. You are made to fight and to win. So close your eyes. What does a king who fights and win, how does a king who fights and win approach this situation? I want you to go away with keys about how you need to change your life after today. Just really quick. Some of you just need to believe that you're going to win. That's the change that you need to make. Okay. But you're also priestly. You are a minister. You are called to have a life of devotion to God. You are meant to be one who pours yourself out as a drink offering before God. 
who gives every fiber of your being and worship to minister to God, to worship God, but also to minister to and to lead and to serve the people. You are meant to serve, to lead, to see others break through and lift it higher. And just as the king in Israel was anointed and empowered, so the, so the priest in Israel was anointed and empowered. You are doubly anointed. And you are part of the highest order in God's kingdom. I am holy because of that. But we're also a holy nation. We are in this together. God doesn't just set one apart in isolation. He wants to set us all apart together. So it actually biblically cannot be an isolated thing. Because God consecrates, sets apart the whole people. So Jesus in John 17, that is a corporate prayer. prayer. He's saying, sanctify them, sanctify all people in truth. All my people be sanctified in truth. You are the head and not the tail, as Deuteronomy 28 tells us. You are meant to be a leader. You are meant to be in front and not behind. And just as the head is at the front of the body, you are called to be a forerunner, pioneering things within the kingdom of God. And we also read in Scripture that you are a temple, that you are a dwelling place for the Spirit of God, a holy environment in which God looks at and chooses to dwell within. A holy environment in which God wants to dwell within. You're made to be one who hosts the presence of God, not just on you, but in you. God does not just set you apart out of something. He sets you apart into something. But I think the biggest question when I've gone through this with God that I have had has been around what we, I think we see Paul uh, says it several times in his letters. Walk worthy of the call of God upon your life. And it's one of those sentences that I think when we're reading scripture, we kind of just skip past. But I remember hearing it a couple of years ago and it just caught something in me. Walk worthy of the call of God upon your life. Oh, I want to walk worthy of the call upon my life. What does that actually look like? My call is to be a prophet and to be a communicator. What does walking worthy of that call look like in every moment of my day? And I think that more than ever before, the Lord is saying to his church, it's not just about ability anymore. It's about lifestyle. And your lifestyle is to be a strong foundation for the call of God to rest on. Your lifestyle must back up your mandate and it must back up your call. And I think we need to ask the question. If you're not moving forward with regards to your call, it might not be a question of your ability anymore. Who feels like they have been to training day after training day after training day? And some of you still aren't moving forward. But actually, maybe your lifestyle, your day-to-day -day rhythm, maybe it isn't withdrawing from you what God has put in you. 
that there's a rhythm, there is a lifestyle, there is a way of doing things that will actually naturally outwork all of what God has put in here. And so I think we need to ask the question, do I lack fulfillment within this area of vision, not because I lack the ability, but because my lifestyle is not aligning with God's kingdom values? What does the lifestyle of a king and a priest look like? What does the lifestyle of someone who is chosen and who is a citizen of heaven look like? And I always am aware, particularly with Isaiah 6, 1, and I know it's before the cross, but he had to encounter the kingdom of God. We know he encountered heaven because of what he saw. He had to have a revelation of God and of his ways and of the angelic before he could then be sent. And there's a revelation that you need to have of God and his ways. And once you have that, then God will happily send you. There is a rediscovering of habits of the heart forgotten that will set you apart as one who fulfills your destiny. And so I was talking to God um, out of that Matthew scripture, where is it exactly again? I don't have it in my notes. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. Um, and I don't have this in my notes. I don't want to talk through it loads, but I was saying, you know, God, I want my thoughts to love you. In fact, even more than that, I want my ideas to love you because my mind's meant to love God. I want the ideas that I bring to leadership team meetings. I want the ideas that I bring to meetings within my own consultancy business. I want these imaginative solutions and ideas to love you. I want all of my emotions to love you. And God started to put his finger on some areas of my life that I realized was actually part of my life so that wasn't withdrawing from me what God had put in me. And around May last year, God broke through for me in the most incredible way with regards to provision. And I now have a business and I love it. It's brilliant. But about the start of this year, because I've been in full-time ministry well, since school, I've had two jobs, a butcher and a, and a waiter in an Indian restaurant and they both lasted two days. Well, two days accumulatively. <laughs> so, <laughs> honestly, that's it. The butcher was too traumatic. <laughs> I like to eat meat, not prepare it. Anyway, <laughs> so he said something. Um, but I really, so I, I've been in full-time ministry and relying, living by faith. And God shifted the season and he brought me into long-term sustainable provision. So I'm not criticizing that. I'm criticizing my own reaction to that breakthrough. And I realized that slowly but surely, because I had a fair amount of money coming in, because I could afford a flat, I could afford a car, I could afford all the nice things in life that I never once could, that I lost the art of dependency. I forgot what it mean, meant to be entirely dependent on God. Because... I thought I had no need to be. I didn't ever have that thought in my head. But I realized I did. And so God has brought me, as I said, I like to eat meat. So this is quite crazy. God brought me on a journey of fasting, which is absolutely God initiated. <laughs> but actually just that sense that this rhythm 
I recognized that the rhythm of my life wasn't honoring, wasn't matching up to 1 Peter 2, 9 in the way it should be. And that I had to relearn something very basic. And I had to do it through fasting to learn what it meant to be dependent upon God. And so, close your eyes. I think it's time for a habit makeover. And I want you to ask God, what is one habit, one routine, one rhythm in your life that is stopping the world from making a withdrawal on you? That is stopping you from fulfilling your call? It could just be the time that you wake up at. I'm one of those people that loves to work. Well, loves is a strong word. I work really late into the night just because I do so many different things. And I thought, I had to do that to make sure that I could get everything finished. But actually, I didn't realize how detrimental filling every moment of my day with work was to me. And that actually, in putting boundaries and times around my working day, I've increased my fruitfulness, um, the amount that I actually get to achieve, and lessening my time that I dedicate to it. Part of the kingdom of God. open your eyes I'm kind of moving towards the business side of things um, now I heard the Lord ask me as I was processing this word God is setting apart the set apart he said Sam what do you think the enemy of being set apart is what do you think the enemy of living a set apart life is and so as the prophet and warrior in me I like to name its Freemasonry. We're being cursed by witches. There's a call activity all around us. Where's the next battle that I get to fight, you know? Do I need to call the intercessors? You know? And everyone, nope, 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 nope. And the Lord said to me, it's procrastination and distraction. It is time to make war against procrastination and distraction. And in a season where God is calling us to be even better representations of him on the earth, to be those marked by profound holiness, to live immersed in his ways, procrastination and distraction are violently dangerous. And as Os Guinness says, one of the best quotes ever, with regards to what he believes the enemy has been doing towards the church. He says, the enemy has used weapons of mass distraction. <laughs> the enemy has used weapons of mass distraction against us. We know our focus is meant to be on one thing, yet so many other things have started to absorb all of our attention. Anyone know that? So, Procrastination is defined in the dictionary as the act of willfully delaying the doing of something that should be done. And in some people, I would say many people, or if not most people, it is a habitual way of handling any task. I'm pointing no fingers. And I think many of us 
have become experts in the art of procrastination. <laughs> and we have met a myriad of excuses and reasons that we're always convincing ourselves with to not to do the very thing that we're meant to do. And James 4, 17, some humdinger of a verse is my favorite word, tells us, it is, it is. It was like, ouch when I first read it. I was like, do I really want to preach that? It says this, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and does not do it, it is sin for them. It is a humdinger. And knowing the good we're, do, we're meant to do, but not doing it, it's essentially procrastination. Uh, but I think, I want to say, well, I know, that really, you do not procrastinate because you are lazy. And actually, myself included, are hyper, super busy with procrastination. And we are exhausting ourselves with procrastination. Yes? You procrastinate because you do not feel equipped enough to handle the task that's set before you. You procrastinate because you do not feel equipped enough to handle the task that is set before you. Procrastination is not rooted in laziness. It is rooted in fear and a void of courage. And so we have two types of procrastination. Briefly, there is the day-to-day -day procrastination. That's the putting off of the small but still important tasks that you know you should do, but because of wrong prioritization or an illusion of busyness, you don't actually get to them. But let's dig a little deeper. And this is a personal kind of example. I have an important email that I know is imperative that I do, but I'm putting it off because deep in me, I don't feel equipped enough to write it well. Not because I'm busy, but because I don't think I'm going to make a good job of it. And I think many of you are living a lie that you're not intelligent enough, wise enough, or even awake enough to make a good job of what God's called you to do in your day-to-day. -day. But I think most of us have engaged or are still engaged with long-term, undiagnosed procrastination. I'm diagnosing it for you right now. Just call me Dr. Sam. Yeah, sounds good. I wanted to be an actor that was a doctor when I was younger. I want to do the real thing. <laughs> Just pretend that I knew it. Do you still want to be that? <laughs> but I think, he's laughing. But I think you have been stuck in cycles of procrastination, putting off the fulfillment of your vision because you see what you don't have as opposed to what you do have. You see what the enemy has and don't think that you're able to take it on. I know that you said I meant to do this, God, but I don't see how on earth I possibly could. We are procrastinating because we are more aware of what we lack than what we have. 
And procrastination is where the lie that you are lacking something becomes more prominent than the truth that God's already equipped you. And I hate the saying that we are in the waiting room waiting on the next move of God. Because I actually think God's in the waiting room waiting on us. And I think many times God has moved and he has spoken and he has initiated and he turns his head to his people and he says, your move. And so, close your eyes. Do you want to start to pass them out? Uh, just in two minutes, I'm going to deal with distraction and then go for it. But I want you to close your eyes and I want you to ask God, what is the thing? Some of you are going to know about 20 straight away as I did. <laughs> but one thing, let's take it one at a time. What is the one thing that I really am meant to be doing that I'm not doing? As Emma says, we don't know how many people come for a prophetic word and we prophesy all these great things to them and they're going, amen, amen, that's so me, yes, so right, and it never happens. So many. And it's a loss. Open your eyes. Do you know, let me just share a quick story before I uh, kind of go through distraction really quickly. I think if there was ever a course in procrastination, I would pass with flying colors. I'd be top of the class. I could get a doctorate in it. This is an art that I have mastered for many years. <laughs> unfortunately. And when I was 13, 14, when I was 14, my best mate, I'd been through quite a rough stage with drinking and just, just stuff that I was, as, as a teenager. But my best mate, unfortunately, I had the resilience to move out of that. My best mate was consumed by it. And I had a dream that lasted about uh, six months. I had it every single night. I never had that other dream in that period of time where I would teach and my best mate would preach and that it would be to a generation of teenagers and of young adults. And we were both under 25 in the vision. We're both 21 just now. And he was saved. He would cast out demons and he would deliver people of all sorts of stuff. And I would preach and I would prophesy and I would, would tag team. And from that point, God started to start in me a vision for, really for the next generation, for the me, so that I am not an anomaly anymore, so I'm not the only 21-year-old that travels and preaches. But because I didn't feel like a youth leader, I don't dress like a youth leader, I don't act like a youth leader, I don't talk like a youth leader, I don't think like a youth leader. I'd sit in youth leaders' meetings and think, I've got none of these ideas whatsoever at all. 
that because of that, because I was more aware of what I thought I lacked than what I had, let's just put off that call. Oh, I'm called to every single person, all of the church, and actually procrastinated within that. And the Lord said, Sam, you're withholding blessing, and you're withholding equipping, and you're withholding revelation from a generation because you don't think you're the person to do it. You are the person to do it. And I didn't realize how much it had controlled and absorbed and limited me. And the Lord just said to me, Sam, would you just start to write the material? He said it like that. Would you just get on with it? And would you just start to write the material? You have something worth bringing to the youth and the young adults table in the nation. Just that's one sentence. And it was almost like, goodness sake, Sam, just get on with it. And there's need for just a corrupt, right, I'm just going to do it. Because if I think about it too much, I'll think myself out of it. If you do not use what is in you, there is something missing from the table in the nation. Distract, uh, distraction really, really quickly. I got distracted by that story. <laughs> it was good to illustrate it. So distraction really is defined very simply and poorly as uh, a thing that prevents someone from concentrating on something else. I much prefer the more exaggerated definition of it that says it is extreme agitation of the mind. I think that probably nails it a little bit more. But I would say that distraction is the inability to see what you need to see. It's the inability to focus on what you need to focus on. There is something that you are to do that you do not know of. And in well-doing and in doing what is deemed right, I think many of us have become extremely distracted in doing what we think we ought to do. Being distracted by conforming to yesterday's ways of doing things rather than seeing the new way of doing things that God wants to give to his church. Actually, being distracted by doing what you've always done. The need to please others has become a distraction. But I think to anchor this in Scripture before we activate and we pray on this, I think, unfortunately, we have become like the 12 spies who saw the promised land they saw their destiny, yet because they chose to fix their eyes on their enemy and not on their God, they put space between their self, their promise, and their promise fulfilled. Ten of the twelve spies say, we see the land is good. They say that in there. It is actually good, and God actually was right. The land really is flowing with milk and honey. It's real. It's right but I don't think it's us, I'm afraid. And I think you've seen what is good. You've laid eyes on the remarkable call of God upon your life, but you have had self-criticizing conversations where you've said, I love what it looks like, but I don't think I'm the man for the job. They saw the promised land, they saw the milk, and they saw the honey, but they did not see and hold on to the promise, and they did not see and hold on to God. And the Lord says, I think right now, the Lord is saying to his people that he is stirring in his people what he stirred in Caleb. And the Lord is saying that there is a courage that may feel a little foreign to you that is rising from your insides 
And the Lord is saying, would you begin to cut through the report of the enemy? And would you begin to testify to what I have already done and what I'm already doing? And the Lord says this, that just as procrastination and distraction are the enemies of the set-apart life, courage is the enemy of procrastination and distraction. And sometimes the most courageous thing to do is to believe what God has put in you. Numbers 14, 24, and with this I'll finish and we'll uh, activate. It says this, but because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. This phrase, follows me wholeheartedly. So this phrase is often translated as the word fully, but it ultimately comes from two words. The word male, I don't know how you pronounce it, but that's how it's spelled, M-A-L-E, and the word mala, M-A-L-A. And this has four meanings. The first one is to be full. The second is fullness and abundance. The third is to be full, to be accomplished, and to come to the end of yourself. But the fourth is to consecrate and to be set apart. And Caleb, who consecrated and set apart every fiber of his being to his God, became a man who got to stand in the fulfillment of his destiny. And the Lord is saying that as you set yourself apart again, I will trust you with your destiny. I will trust you with your vision. I will trust you with your call. I will trust you with your mandate. And you will get to stand in fulfillment, not just promise. to consecrate, to be set apart. And as you engage in this intentional lifestyle, the Lord is going to fast forward and accelerate you into fulfillment. So uh, the guys are going to hand out a post-it note uh, to you just now on uh, a piece of paper. roasting and as you get a piece of paper you might already have one but it needs to be a piece of paper that you're okay to give up you can put in the, we're going to put it in a bin and I want you to ask I want you to kind of tune into these instructions just because they're very specific for some of you you're going to know that your life has been consumed by one or both of these things, distraction and procrastination. For others of you, you're going to know that there's actually one particular thing that you do to procrastinate or one particular thing that's distracting you. We're going to ask God, though, to kind of re to reveal it to us. And so I want you to write on that page, procrastination on one side and distraction on the other. And I want you to ask God... Where have I procrastinated? Where have I been distracted? Now, if you don't have any, or you, there's so many that they don't fit on the post-it note, that's fine. You might just want to write a lifestyle or a habit of procrastination and distraction. Because in a moment... I'm going to invite you to stand up and we're going to repent and break agreement with this and we're going to come and put these things, these lifestyles in the bin.
in the offering tray. That's fine. And so you're saying, God, I, I, some of you might need to say, be specific. I have procrastinated with regards to the call on my life to move job. I am procrastinating with a house move. I am procrastinating with birthing a ministry. I am procrastinating with a specific decision that I know I need to make. And some of you are going to be surprised because God is going to take you to 10, 20 years ago where he spoke something to you and he's going to bring it into your present. He's going to bring it into your now. You've got to redeem the time that has been lost over it. I feel so strongly as well after what we saw earlier of people who didn't know their call that as you close your eyes right now God is going to cause you to remember a moment years ago for some of you decades ago where he first spoke and released a call into your life and you've been procrastinating ever since you've forgotten it and that actually some of you who stood, not all of you, for that particular area, did know your call. You just completely forgot about it. There's others that you know you've meant to leave your job for years. But you never have. And hear me on this, it's not saying tomorrow I'm going to go and hand in my resignation. But it's saying I am standing in courage and starting the process. I'm actually proactively going to act to work with this word from God. I'm going to dedicate time to pray about it and to get into the word and to hear his voice. Just as praying about this as well, for some of you in the room, you've been procrastinating over forgiveness. And that there are people in your lives that you know you need to forgive. But you just don't feel that you can do it. The Lord says it's time to deal with that. So do you want to stand to your feet? These are habits of the heart that we need to forget. And so... I'm going to get you to repeat after me in a moment, and then I'll just give you instructions from there. But I want you to just close your eyes. So just repeat after me. Father God, in the name of Jesus, I am so sorry for where I have built a lifestyle of distraction and of procrastination. 
I am sorry for where I have intentionally engaged with this. I am sorry for putting off the good you've called me to do. I am sorry for not seeing that I'm actually able. I'm sorry for being consumed by what the enemy has. And by what I do not have. I'm sorry for being more self-aware than God-aware. And I want you to just say after, um, say sorry to God just quietly for whatever it is that you've written on your piece of paper and just make it personal. You know, God, I'm sorry for not uh, moving job. I'm sorry for not starting the ball, ball rolling with birthing a ministry. Or I'm sorry with some of you, you, you've been prompted to give a huge seed, a huge financial seed, and you've put it off because of fear. God, I'm sorry for, for putting that off. And so, at each side of the stage, there are trays, kind of bowls. And I want you just, when you're ready, to come forward, and the team are going to hold it. Sarah Jane, can you hold that one as well? They are going to hold it, and I'm going to get you to pray with me for a moment. And as you come, and as you put your pieces of paper in there, they're going to pray something along the lines of, we break, I break procrastination and distraction, and I release courage to you in the name of Jesus. So, but I want us to pray that for ourselves first, but it's good to just have another set of hands on you. So, we're just going to repeat after me. So, in the name of Jesus, I break agreement with procrastination and distraction. And I command these spirits to leave me now in the name of Jesus. So you want to breathe in and just breathe it out. They are spirits as well as habits. We breathe that out in the name of Jesus. Procrastination and distraction gets off your back in Jesus' name. It goes in Jesus' name. Some of you have been forced into these lifestyles through these spirits. It gets off your back now in the name of Jesus. Some of you have been distracted because the enemy has blinded your eyes from seeing what you need to see. In the name of Jesus, you are now able to see with clarity the direction and the things that you're meant to do. In Jesus' name. And so when you feel ready, do you want to come and put your piece of paper in the bin? And just as that happens, if we can get some quiet music or instrumental music playing in the background... Jesus' name. Yeah. So we lose courage to you in Jesus' name. We lose courage to you in Jesus' name. 
Okay, we've got about half an hour before our dinner break. How's your concentration? Good? <laughs> you did a you're not distracted in any way. You'll be fully focused for whatever is coming next. Well done, you lot. Okay. Couple of you want to shout out what you think God's just given you the courage to do. Talk to me. More evangelism. Prophetic evangelism. Yeah, it's a difference, isn't there? Okay. Anybody else? Write a book. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good. Who else? Who else wants to tell me what they're going to have boldness to do? Just speak out. You want to go out and meet people again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Use your voice. Now, that's interesting because that's where I'm going for the next half an hour. I think, did you read my notes? <laughs> okay, we're going to try to stick to time. Listen fast. I'm going to talk fast. Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. Has to be said with an Ulster accent to hold. It is powerful. Have a go at that. Powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare and all in the temple cry, glory. And the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me about the state of the church in the nation. And he said this to me, Satan has shut down your communication. He says, Satan has been working on a long-term plan to silence the church. There has been an assignment to keep you quiet, to gag you, to smother your voice till you dare not breathe a word of your opinion. And the truth that is within you is swept under the carpet. And the Spirit of the Lord says over the church in the land in this hour, I have not lost my voice, but my church has lost hers. And the Lord says, I have not lost my way, and I make straight paths for you, but my church is a meandering church. I have not stopped speaking, said the Lord, but my people are silent. And the Lord said, I did not give you a powerless place in the nation. I did not make my church to be impotent and on the back foot. I am not a retreating God, and I do not want a retreating church. And the Lord says, this day, I want to put some fire in your mouth. And the Lord says, your tongues will hold my word. And just as my word does not return to me void, so as you are in my image, your words will neither return void and they will shift and change the culture and the atmosphere. And the Lord says, you will speak into your daily battles and you will start to see a remarkable turnaround. And the Lord says, you will speak even into your long-standing battles and you will see a remarkable turn around and the spirit of the Lord says speak church for these are the days of the voice of the Lord in the earth now tell me this have you ever been misunderstood 
Have you ever been misrepresented and communication has gone awry? Have you ever thought, why, why don't they understand what I'm talking about? I thought that was really clear. Have you ever spoken and all you got in return was counter arguments rather than solutions? Who thinks what they say, what they have said, should have had more of an impact than it actually did? I actually heard the Spirit of the Lord say to me recently, it's time to deal with the spirit of smallness against the voice. That that spirit looks like glass walls all round about you, and you can see the impact that your words should have, but actually they ricochet off the glass walls round about you. And I'm here today to say to you, your voice is supposed to be heard. Your voice is supposed to hang in the atmosphere and be deeply impacting. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor, God is giving you an anointed voice for communication. And the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is saying that the gift from his throne room to our church in this hour is anointed communication. I want to say by the time you leave for your dinner, your hesitancy will have dropped off onto the floor. Your tongue-tied words will be no more. There will be no more, oh, I wish I'd said that. Church, you will speak and you will be heard. And let me tell you, some of you have had far too much of a false wisdom for this. Now, my boss, I call her my boss. She's my apostolic oversight. We're part of um, her family tree. That's Dr. Sharon Stone. And she said, actually quite recently to me, she said, I had a number of interns. Actually, it was a story about when she'd lived in Newcastle, so it would have been a while ago. And she said, the interns had wandered down the road from the church to the local pub, and they'd just been trained in prophetic evangelism. And one of the little girls walked up to the man at the bar without a word of introduction, opened her mouth and said this, God can forgive anything even even murder. Would you say that? <laughs> or would you do that kind of prophetic circling before you and, and actually never land it? Do you know that that man was out of prison for murder the very day before? And he was so impacted by one sentence that he came back up the road to the church and got saved, healed, and delivered. And I think we have had such false wisdom that we have tamed our words. And so I just want you to ask your neighbor this question. Are your words too tame? Neighbor, are your words too tame? And then ask your, anybody, anybody say, no, reply to you, no, my words are full forced. Anybody say, no, 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 my words aren't tame. Anybody answer that way? A couple of, a couple of you, a couple of you. 
but most of you have two tame words. Then let's ask this, Lord, are any of my words falling to the floor without effect? Lord, are any, Father God, tell me, are any of my words falling to the floor without effect? Do you remember Samuel? Not a word fell to the ground. He's the only prophet that's written about. Are any of my words falling to the ground without effect? How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? It's just a facial expression. Okay. Sad. Thank you. Okay. I think it would not be hard to argue that Western democracy is in crisis. We'll talk about that more tonight. But if we pause to ask ourselves, what on earth is going on in Westminster and what about the United States? We see that there's a deep uncertainty in the heart of man about who we are and the way we should go. And I want to put it to you that this is directly because the church lost its voice and withdrew from the public arena many decades ago. And so what you now have is truth that is hostage, taken hostage. Fake news abounds. Oh, well, do you know what? Facts are completely uh, unimportant. Spin is everything. Make it up as you go along. Truth is whatever makes you feel good. Cook the facts to suit yourself. And God, who is omnipresent, has a foe, Satan, who is not. But Satan would like to be omnipresent. So Satan has a strategy. The omnipresence of deceit. In an age bursting with deceived opinions, deceived politics, deceived business principles, deceived ways of doing relationships, I would say that that omnipresence of deceit has been highly successful. And part of the aggressive heat against the church from the secularist community is that secularism has not run to plan. Because Christianity was supposed to have died and withered by now. We were supposed to have been crushed out of existence. And the secular press, with increasing degrees of antagonism against us, simply cannot understand why millions of Christians still take Jesus seriously. And the rumors of Jesus have not gone away. But the Lord says that he wants to start a revolution of truth communication in this day. Because somebody said to me recently that isn't it good that the church is gloriously ready for the 1950s? And wouldn't we like to be ready for 2025 and 2050? Do not yearn for the world that you grew up in because God is giving you an anointed voice for communication. There is the ability to hold the Bible in one hand and the culture in the other and to line them both up. Say to your neighbor, God is giving you an anointed voice for communication. Neighbor... Let me tell you how this looks like in a life. I was in the hairdressers maybe three visits ago. Oh, she hates Jesus, and I love going there. <laughs> Everything about her is antagonistic. 
And she's saying to me, what are you up to at the moment, Emma? She knows what I do for a living. And I'm saying to her, well, my 14-year-old is trying to figure out whether she spends her summer holidays smuggling Bibles into China. And of course, it's illegal, and she's under 18, so we're not quite sure whether we should let her go to do that. Now, I'm surprised I did not lose an ear. And she (laughs) is doing everything within her power just to not contort her face. She has no value for the Bible. She has no value for truth. And yet I am wittering away with an anointed voice for communication. And I am antagonizing and making war on the spirits in her territory. So I leave. And the next time I go back, this ungodly, anti-Jesus woman sees me park my car runs to the door, flings the door open, pulls me into the shop for my next appointment and said, Emma, what did you decide to do? Did the Chinese get their Bibles? <laughs> and that is, that is just because an anointed voice for communication dared to speak even in the midst of opposition. So I was in the beauticians last week, less than a week ago, actually, and she comes from an Iranian family, and she um, is starting to talk to me about her family relationships, and it's a mess. There's domestic violence, usury, subjugation of women. Can I tell you what? She thought it was okay. Now, she's actually watched me minister to her colleague when I had my, my, my fingernails done before. And she actually had been waiting for me to come back in because she wanted me to minister to her. And she'd squirreled me away down in the basement where nobody could see. And she's crying whilst doing my toenails. Now, I'm fairly sure it wasn't my feet and it was the Holy Spirit <laughs> that was doing it. But she did not know that women were valuable. And by the end of the appointment, I am up the stairs in the public place because they're all Iranian women who work there. And I am praying for her and all the staff there to be released into their destiny as strong-minded women of God. And I go there, and every time I go, the atmosphere changes. And actually, by the end of the appointment, I am sorting out a divorce lawyer, can hardly believe that, that is going to start to get these women out of domestic violence. I could not have done that on the first visit. I couldn't have got those women free on the first visit. But that anointed voice for communication had hung in the atmosphere over a multiplicity of visits until there was a time where they said, yes, we don't want to be beaten up and raped anymore. I was in Clark's. You think I've spent my life in a glorious beautician shop. I don't really, honestly. I was in Clark's shoe shop in the main street in Glasgow with my daughter and the manager's helping me out and she's saying well what do you do for a living and I'm like well I'm a Christian minister and she kind of eyes me a bit suspiciously usually say I'm a I'm a prophet and that really is an interesting conversation (laughs) some if somebody's really annoying me I go I'm an exorcist but (laughs) that has got me into a lot of trouble actually so I'm going, I'm a Christian minister. I have the best job in the world. And Jesus is so amazing. And it's, a, it's wonderful to lay hands on people and they get healed. And I'm telling her stories that people get. I'm not even let her speak. 
and Jesus, you can have this relationship with him. And oh, handbags. Oh, high heels. And we're weaving back and forth. I mean, the most normal kind of, for me, conversations about high heels and glamorous things in Jesus. And at the end of the appointment, she grabs my arm and she says this, I have never once not ever heard anybody speak well of being a Christian and Jesus. And she says to me, I have worked here on Glasgow's busiest shopping street for 24 years, and I have felt increasingly dead. She said, I will remember you till my dying days, because something in me now feels like it is alive. And she says, can I bring my sick husband to your healing rooms round the corner? Would your God heal my husband? So I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, God is giving you an anointed voice for communication. It does not matter where you are. Let me tell you a story. There's a colorful and controversial novelist called Norman Mailer. And he was once invited to speak at the University of Berkeley in California. And it was at a time when Norman Mailer was notorious for his scathing dismissal of the women's movement. And he bragged publicly that he was a champion male chauvinist pig. And many women students were incensed at the brazen way he flaunted his bigotry and irritated by the fact that he'd been invited to lecture in the first place. And so a large group of feminists decided to come to the lecture and give him such a roasting, he would regret even taking that invitation. In their view, Mailer was a rank and shameless misogynist and he needed to be put in his place. Several of the accounts go like this, that the air was crackling as Mailer entered the lecture room. He had been warned in advance that the feminists would be hostile and were lying in wait. Mailer strode confidently through the crowd and stepped up to the podium. And he announced that he had come with important things to say. So those that wish to hiss and boo should get it out at once. And he threw down his gauntlet. Everyone in this hall who views me as a male chauvinist pig, hiss. As if perfectly on cue, the feminist broke out in a loud derisive hissing and booing, which rose to a crescendo of long sustained jeering. It was punctuated with derisive catcalls and whistles from the men who had also come to the room. For a while, there was absolute pandemonium, but it had inevitably had to die down. Feminists could not keep up the booing forever. A mailer stepped back onto the microphone, and he looked over to them, and he paused for just a second or two, and he said this. Obedient little women, aren't you? For a second, the outcome hung in the balance. 
But the ploy worked, and Mailer had a canny mastery of his audience. And while Mailer's views are rightly abhorrent to us, his communication skills and style are very biblical. Because most people are not open to what you and I have to say. And many people in the Bible stood in times where what they carried was not warmly received. And we are in a very similar place to those who communicated in biblical times, those who wear a voice. And God did not just give words to his people. He gave the art of prophetic persuasion. They had God-inspired prophetic persuasion. And the fact that it is more hostile for you and I right now than it was in our grandparents' day should absolutely excite us because we are going to partner with God in a way they never got to because God is giving us an anointed voice for strategic communication. Tell your neighbor that. God's given you an anointed voice. So, <laughs> Perhaps you'd like a biblical example of that. <laughs> Do you remember Micaiah in 1 Kings 22? Not Micah, he's different, Micaiah. King Jehoshaphat from Judah and King Ahab of Israel, oh, they're colluding together. And they're forging an alliance to take territory back from the Syrians. And the question was simple. Would the campaign have the backing of God and end in victory? So naturally, they call the prophets. What else are prophets for? That's why royalty and prime ministers and businessmen and women ring us. You, you want direction, you ask a prophet. And the prophets are marvelously obliging. 400 of them, yay, attack and you will win. You will gore your enemy. Your enemy will be handed straight to you. And they create these theatrical visual age. They've got these ox horns to show how the enemy will be routed and impaled in a deadly way. And King Jehoshaphat is bothered with this impressive prophetic performance. And he says to King Ahab, hmm, don't you have another prophet? And Ahab, one of the grumpiest scriptures, says this, and I quote, There is still one prophet whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, always bad. And his name is Micaiah. And Micaiah is duly summonsed and pre-briefed. Micaiah, you make sure that you line up with what everybody else is saying. And he knows that the whole court is there and all the prophets in the land. And in that moment, he knows that he needs not just a revelation, but a communication strategy. He needs an anointed voice that will keep his life intact. He needs a way to say what God is saying that will gain traction and be heard. And he walks in, and the whole court hold their breath. And he says this, attack and win. Hang on, isn't that what, did you just agree? Hang on a minute. And Ahab is suspicious. Is he being tongue-in-cheek? Is he withholding key information from me? 
And Ahab interrupts, how many times must I make you swear, Ahab thunders, with a hypocrisy that must have been fairly comic to everyone present, that you must speak to me nothing but the truth. (laughs) And Micah simply replies, you will die. And your people will be leaderless. Go and read the story. The effect must have been stunning that Ahab walks into Micaiah's knockout punch just as the feminists had walked into Mailer's punch and at the king's own insistence, truth was heard publicly. You see, you and I, we don't play by the rules. We're not of this earth. We go beyond rational arguments. We're of another kingdom. We grab hold of that kingdom and we pull it into the earth because you and I have glory and you and I have anointing and that lands on our vocal cords. And when the word of God says, be as innocent as doves and as shrewd as serpents, well, it is time to practice that in your communication. God is giving you an anointed voice for strategy and communication. We played it too nice, didn't we? I remember as a university student, I studied in the University of York about 20 years ago. And I was running the pro-life society at the time, a small, unsupported society. It had never had many more than 20 members in its history. Abortion is such a controversial subject. And the student union, before Freshers' Fair one year, took all my literature, and it was really before mobile phones and uh, uh, even email. Certainly, I didn't know how to use it back then. And they censored all my literature with big black indelible pens. And they scored out every reference in the material I had to words like embryo or fetus because they saw those two words as deeply offensive. And they actually put big marks through what I thought were quite helpful photographs of children's development within the womb. And they thought it would shut me down. And they handed it all back to me and said, this is the only stuff you can use in Freshers' Fair. But God had given me a creative strategy for communication. And gleefully, I took it to the photocopier on campus, blew it all up, as large as I could get every piece of paper, and for a full week shouted all day, every day, look how I've been censored. Look at how they've limited my voice. Look at how the student union deal with differing opinions. I didn't even once mention abortion because God had given a strategy. And slowly, it was like a rallying call. And first of all, the Catholic Society, they came and they signed up en masse. And then the rumors spread. I'd led the Christian Union the year before. There were 400 of them. And 400 of them came en masse and signed up and joined the Society. And then the Methodists. And then the Anglicans. And then other people who were too shy, who didn't even agree with what I believed, but were so incensed by any sense of injustice, they became members. And at the end of the week, we were one of the university's largest societies. 
which meant I was allowed funding, I was allowed regular slots uncensored to advertise all over campus at any time I so chose, and I had platforms at the student meetings and the student hustings. And for an entire year, I irritated everybody who turned up to every student union meeting by talking about the sanctity and the preciousness of life to the point To the point where in the midst of it all, a dear atheist friends, worn down my, by my gleeful celebrations of how God had given life, fell to his knees in Vambra Bar and gave his life to Jesus in public and then went to work as a spirit-filled godly man for the Chancellor of the Exchequer in Downing Street. <laughs> And another friend came out of nominal Christianity and found his passion again during that year in my conversations about God who gives abundant life. And he went to work in Whitehall advising on economic policy as he found his faith again. I had girls come to me all year saying, I never thought about abortion being a death before. And it changed the status quo in so many hundreds of people's lives. And the student union was in uproar. And in my feminism and the body politic class, because I did a politics degree, I mean, that was a, oh, that was a class. The lecturer was so vexed by what had gone on that she said this to me, I don't like your smell. You're not allowed to wear your perfume in my class. And I thought, that's not perfume, that's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and when your voice gets anointed in about three or four minutes time, I will tell you what will happen. It will bring the rest of the church out of hiding because there is an anointed strategy for communication and an anointed voice so in you that it will inspire those who are backsliding and on the, in their caves and they will come back out to the battle again. And the Lord is saying that he is going to release anointing that will be like vocal dominoes where you will speak and it will inspire somebody else to speak because you are not just a people who are visiting God on Sundays, but you are his voice 24-7. Come on. And when I, when I open the Bible with my children and I quote to them that scripture from Hebrews, that the word of the Lord is powerful and active. <gasps> you can open this book up. Oh my goodness, look at the fireworks that are coming out of it. It's alive. This is more powerful than a nuclear bomb. And speaking its words is like being electrocuted by a strike of lightning. And if you think I'm overstating it for dramatic effect, you've not read much of it. And Psalm 29 verse 7 says, The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning, and all you do is open your mouth. And if you are mumbling and saying, oh, well, that's okay for somebody who maybe went to elocution or is trained, and I would just mumble some sort of impotent way, I want you to hear what your neighbor is about to say to you right now. God is giving you an anointed voice for communication. John, f <laughs> it's true, it's true. Oh, particularly you. 
It's good. It is. John 14, verse 16. Tell your neighbor, you need to hear this. You need to hear this. John 14, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Now, isn't it interesting that John does not say Holy Spirit. He deliberately chooses his words. He says advocate. And that comes from the word paraclete, which you will have heard the word paraclete. Do you know that the word paraclete in New Testament times was the word used for an attorney or a lawyer, somebody that can stand up and speak? And five times, four in the Gospels and once in one of his letters, John chooses to say, you do not just have a wafting bird flapping about your head. You have an onboard paraclete. You have an onboard lawyer. You have an onboard attorney the entire time. This is not me preaching just about technique. It is about being baptized in the Holy Spirit all over again. Who knows they need a new Pentecost? Okay. It is not about proving something by brilliant argument. It is about getting a voice back that is so anointed that it cuts through and brings a solution to all the earth's problems. God is giving you an anointed voice for communication. This is not a day to speak in generalities when the, when the nations have a leadership crisis. This is not a time to speak in Christianese and hide behind doors and only have the words glory and hallelujah in your armory when the nation's greatest need is clarity. This is not the time to liquidize the content of a school nativity play and pour it into somebody's ear holes at every given opportunity. This is about specific communication that is anointed. It is not a time to huff and puff behind closed doors, but it is a time to offer solutions in the public place. And it's like being in the hairdressers. It just doesn't matter how angry they are. Amos 7.14, but Amos replied, I am not a professional prophet. Did you, did you know that was in there? I'm not a professional prophet. I was never trained to be one. I'm quoting Amos. I'm just a shepherd and I take care of sycamore fig trees. So I want to speak to anybody who's not a prophet and not in full-time ministry like Amos was. God is giving you a voice that is outside your normal experience and your normal realm. And God is asking you to be so burned with fire on your tongue that you will have a new Pentecost and you will work with the advocate, the, ho the onboard lawyer like you never have before. And do you remember at Pentecost what comes on their heads? In tongues of fire, it talks about cloven, and in other words, di distributed, a distribution of. So they didn't all just get, oh, look at that, you've got a lovely little tongue bumping along on your head, isn't that cute? They're like, oh my goodness, I've just been struck by lightning. It was a bit more like that. Hi, because the because of what it says in the original text. And they get a proportion of fire, they get a distribution of fire, and they get a distribution of known tongues. They didn't get a distribution of they didn't get that.
they got known tongues. <laughs> because they flood down the stairs and they're not talking the language of heaven. They are talking in the languages of the culture of the day. And they speak to the Gentiles and they understand. And they have the ability to enunciate clearly in culturally relevant terms. You know, to do that in English is a miracle. But to do that in another language is a spectacular miracle. And I want to say to you right now that God is going to give you a known tongue and you are going to have either the tongue of business or the tongue of politics or the tongue of education or the tongue of communication or the tongue of storytelling or the tongue for the family mountain. That's or a tongue for good journalism. Known tongues, known languages, because you are not going to be able to pull off what you need to pull off in this culture with just kayamana shialaliyamane. As great as that is, actually. We have spoken to each other in prophecy, and we have blessed the church. But now is the time for a new level of anointing that is going to speak to the culture. And God is enlarging our application of the gift of language. You know, Joseph had this as well. Do you remember? He's not skilled. He's not trained. He's had 13 years in prison. J Joseph did not have Pharaoh attending his church. He had a church of two. He managed to split it down the middle by dream interpretation and have one of them killed. And suddenly, he is pulled up before Pharaoh, and in a split second, he has got to get the language of a royal court descending to him in a moment. Daniel has this in the political arena as well. God is going to give you the, the language, let me say it again, of science and the arts, of medicine, of politics, of philosophy, of theology, of church, of family. And you are going to breathe and speak with such an empower, in such an empowered way that there will be a day where we are able to say, oh, that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Turn to your neighbor and say, God is giving you an anointed voice for communication. And happily, because Sam has so eloquently dealt with it, you're not going to be distracted or procrastinated any longer in doing it. I don't think anybody can deny that the Christian story is hard to believe. Christian morality is tough. Christian business demands more than non-Christian business. That's not the point. You're going to speak again and again and again and again and again. And no longer will you be silent in the corner like you have nothing in you worth hearing. In you is a liberating story. In you is a healing story. In you is a kingdom of God business solution. In you is truth. In you are the ways of a king who overcomes. And you live in the moment of the most extraordinary opportunities where you can come truly into a new Holy Spirit partnership. 
There is an anointing that is about to land on you that will bypass the power of the Quran. It will bypass agendas. It will bypass stubborn hearts. It will bypass the secularism of the age. It will bypass hate speech. And the Lord is saying, church, it is time to speak and be strange. Please stand. I spoke fast, you listened fast. Well done, we got there. You are going to have to repent for your silence. I cannot do that for you. You are going to have to get a hold of yourself and start to say, I am sorry, God, for every time I just went to the kitchen in the office and hid away there making toast and jam rather than actually say what needed to be said. Father, we are sorry. Oh, God, we're sorry. We've been so silent. We've been so withdrawn, Father, vocally from the nation. Father, we've been so silent, and we need your mercy right now. Father, we need your forgiveness. So, Father God, in the name of Jesus, I'm asking that you would turn up and have mercy and not deal with me as I deserve, Father God. Can you just repeat after me, family? Father God, in the name of Jesus. I repent for my demonic partnership with silence. Now, demonic spirits are spirits. They come out on the breath. It's the only time in church you're allowed to burp or yawn or fart or cough. That spirit's coming out. How else do you think they get out? I know she just just said that. So as I pull this spirit silence off you, you can do any of those things. As long as it's a spirit. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and not your curry for lunch. I speak to that spirit of silence and that deaf and dumb muteness in the room. And I call you up and out of these dear ones in the mighty name of Jesus. And I say, you are going to leave them quietly and cleanly. And you are not going to do them any harm. And in the name of Jesus, I extract you from their lives. Now, my family, I want you to take a big, deep breath. I want you to blow it out. All of it comes out on the breath. Everything of silence, everything of muteness now leaves your body in the mighty name of Jesus. Deliverance ministry is very easy. Don't have any nonsense and Hollywood histrionics. We just blow out the spirit because Jesus is too powerful for anything else. Everything off of silence. Everything else of deaf and dumb and muteness. Now, I told you about the glass walls of smallness earlier. Do you remember right at the beginning? I know I went like lightning through that. But I think actually there's an anointed shout that's going to shatter the glass walls of smallness. Anybody ever shouted in church before? 
Anybody like, I have never shouted in church. I am too religious for that. Okay. <laughs> I grew up Irish Baptist, do you know? And my husband grew up free Presbyterian. He only ever sung unaccompanied psalms with a tuning fork, you know, to get the note. And then we met the Holy Spirit. And now we're allowed drums. He used to write to our minister, Michael the Belfry in York, in the days of the Toronto Blessing, and say, I think those drums might be demon-possessed. He did, seriously. How far we've come. It is called in Scripture, a shout is called a hruhwa. And it's the word given at the time where a shout comes from the people of Israel as they walk around the walls of Jericho. It's not just a noise for the sake of being noisy. It's not some ungodly primal scream. It's an anointed shout that shatters walls straight from the word of God. So if an Irish Baptist can do it, I'm quite sure you can too. Some of you are going to have to shout Jesus. Some of you are just going to have to shout hallelujah. Some of you will just shout. But it will make those walls come down of your ineffective speech where it just bounces back at you. On the count of three. One, two, three. So, Father, I thank you that this is the end of the days of the walls of smallness where words are fall to the ground. Father, I thank you that these are now the days of words landed and none of them being lost. And in the name of Jesus, let's put our hands up so you can grab hold of this. In the name of Jesus, I release to you the gift of the known tongue. The known tongue. Hey, amane that you would now know what to say in each and every circumstance, that it is culturally appropriate. And the Holy Spirit just comes, and it's like lightning, isn't it? And he just comes in, he says, it's yours, it's yours, it's yours, it's yours, just like it was at Pentecost. And finally, it is my great joy to loose over you an anointing for strategic communication right now in the mic. Grab hold it, grab it, grab it. That's mine, that's mine. I loose over you right now for you to take hold of anointed communication. In Jesus' name. Now you have to go and practice. I tell you what, my 14-year-old was sent out very recently into a local ASDA in the north of Glasgow, and she was told to go and practice anointed communication. 14 years old. She says, Mommy, I just walked up to this couple, and I said I wanted to pray for them, and I was a Christian. And they said to her this, We don't need any prayer because we're Christian. 
14 years old, she says this. She says, everybody needs prayer. So I'm just going to pray for you right now. And she says, I just see this little girl wrapped in uh, uh, bandages in a hospital. And, and God is saying that he's just about to release healing all over her life. And they are sobbing in the reception area of Asda because they say our granddaughter is dying in hospital. And a 14-year-old can go up and deal with that. So give your pal a hug and say, you now have an anointed voice for communication. <laughs> Amen. Could we, give, could we give Emma a round of applause? And, and for the wider Glasgow team, thank you.